Well, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're in part 5 of our exploration of the days of creation. As a very general reminder, treating these days as literal 24-hour periods of time, uh, not eras, not God's work days, not something else that gets pushed into Scripture. Scripture's pretty clear in what it says, and, and I just don't really have a problem with the reality of what it says, that God created, there was day, there was evening, one day. So on the first day of creation, God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, everything, that came to be came out of God's spoken Word. God begins the process of creating everything on day one in His own eternal timeless existence. God initiates the beginning of time as we experience it today. And the longer I think we experience time, the more we recognize how unkind time is to us. But that does not apply to God because God is beyond time and beyond space. He is timeless. He is eternal. The earth was a massive ball of water steeped in darkness. It was uninhabited and it was uninhabitable. His spirit is moving over the surface of earth's waters as his specific focus and attention is now identified and God creates light. This light illuminates or emanates rather from his own being out of his own glory before there were any celestial bodies created. God allowed the glory of himself to shine upon the darkness of the earth And in this, he separates the light from the darkness, calling the light day and the darkness night. And that ended the first day of creation. On day two, God creates the atmosphere, separating the waters from the waters. The earth is still a formless planet, completely covered in water. But now there is an atmosphere in what we experience as the skies. And beyond those skies, space that exhibits the light of the stars and some of the other planets that are in our galaxy that we can see with our naked eye from time to time. This ended day two. On day three, God gathers the waters into one place. He calls dry land to appear from beneath the water. The earth is now a massive, now has a massive land mass, but is still mostly covered by water. In this third division, the dry land appears nutrient-rich and ready to complete the filling of the earth, which really is the last three days of creation. So this third foundational division, God has created light from darkness, waters from the waters in the atmosphere, and here He divides the water from the dry land. As a part of day three, God also creates vegetation, causing plants and trees to sprout. These plants and trees have seeds of their own kind, which ensures the propagation of the species. It now begins to fill this empty and this barren landscape, this Vegetation is God's way of ensuring that on day six, when, when, excuse me, day five and six, when animals and mankind is created, there is now food for them. And so many of the questions that relate around the, the, the probability of a 24 hour period of creation is how in the world could God create vegetation on day four and then by day five and six animals and humans are ready to eat? Well, because nothing is impossible with God. God can do more than we ask and more than we think. And when we try to impose a naturalistic 
explanation into the biblical narrative, we've come out with questions that just aren't answered in the Scripture. Well, Moses isn't creating a scientific treatise to answer all of these questions, but this God who can create absolutely everything out of nothing, most certainly in a single 24-hour period, can create all of the vegetation that is necessary to sustain life on earth. Through each of the first three days of creation, God has named what He has created. The naming of these pieces of creation is theologically important because it demonstrates creation's subordinate role to the Creator. And in naming these aspects of creation, it is God's way of ensuring that mankind worships the Creator and not that which He has created. This creation and creator is a contrast of the mythological gods that the Israelites would encounter during their time on earth and the ensuing idolatry that would be the result of the mythological gods that were around them. Mankind has always struggled with maintaining spiritual purity and the Israelites are a great example of how quickly and how completely A nation called God's own people can veer away from the truth of who He is and give themselves over to the worship of worthless things. Now, as we turn our attention today for, we're going to read together verses 14 through 19 and look at what God's Word says to us today, beginning in 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was an evening and there was morning a fourth day. Now in reading these verses, you should notice that the command that is issued in verses 14 and 15 are then repeated in inverse order in verses 17 and 18, and verse 16 then serves as the centerpiece of God's creation, creative, creative work on this day. And so we're going to treat these, um, this command and the, the inverted command being fulfilled together so as to not be redundant in going through these verse by verse. So as a reminder, there is an intelligent and symmetrical component that is seen in the days of creation. So in day, we're on day four, so in day one we see light, in day four we see the symmetrical luminaries, in day two the sky where the atmosphere is created, and in day five there will be the birds and then in the fish as the waters, the sky and the waters are separated. Day three, there is the land and the vegetation. And then day six is the symmetrical creation of animals and man. And so on day four, God creates the luminaries. What is absolutely amazing to me is the simplicity with which Moses describes the creation of the luminaries, when in fact it is among the most complex aspects of God's creation. So much so that modern scientific minds still fail to fully understand or explain 
its existence. There's great debate as to how it originated, when it originated, how long it has been, what is it that makes up each of the aspects that we would see out there in the vastness of our universe. So the lights in the expanse is an all-inclusive description of everything that we would be able to see in the skies and that which exists on a much, much larger scale out in space beyond what can be seen with the human eye while sitting here on the earth. Voluminous works of speculative theory exist within the study of physics, astrophysics, cosmology, astronomy, and others that would take hours and hours to sift through. Billions and billions of dollars have been spent in the study and exploration of space. And with each new discovery, there are more and more questions that come alongside of these discoveries that continue to reveal the complexity of what was created when God simply said, let there be lights in the expanse. Now remember, Moses is describing this from his earthbound perspective. He is not attempting to provide a scientific treatise on the universe. And so built into Moses' purpose is the, in this account is to display the power and the wisdom in God's creation. The psalmist has a similar goal in mind when he would say in 33 verses 6 through 9, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The mystery of creation, the glory of creation, is what ought to be the end result of man's conclusion is this God that has created this is far above and beyond my ability to understand. It is more wonderful than I can even explain. And what God has created is designed to draw us to bow our hearts and our lives before Him and worship. So another part of Moses' purpose is to remind the Israelites of the one true God who created it all. And it's a reminder to them of this one true God who rules over them and who they are to serve as they have been called as a nation out of their enslavement to the nation of Egypt. So believing that Moses has written this account of the days of creation during the wilderness wandering, the experience of the Israelites in Egypt would be very, very fresh in their mind. So having come out of Egypt, they were very familiar with the worship of the many mythological Egyptian gods. Ancient Egypt had as many as 1,500 identical deities that in their mind ruled absolutely every facet of life. And it wouldn't be difficult to remember that the experience of the Israelites as they were in the wilderness wanderings, as they were making their way to the promised land, they did not go back to the experience of Egypt where they had more food, where they had more water, where they had more uh, amenities within life. 
They carried that desire, that expectation into the promised land very, very quickly. Their allegiance to God was derailed. And the idols that were fashioned by the hands of men that that exalted some form of creation were consistently a lure and a draw to the Israelites. So God through Moses warned the Israelites of the seriousness of idolatry. And we would read these words in Deuteronomy 17. If there is found in your midst in any of your towns with the Lord your God is giving you a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God by transgressing His covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any of the heavenly host which I have not commanded and if it is told you and you have heard it then you shall inquire thoroughly. Behold, if it is true and the thing certain that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out the man or the woman who has done this evil deed to your gates. That is the man or the woman and you shall stone them to death. So Moses exalts the majesty and the glory of God in creation to remind them that He is the one true God, that they are to worship Him and Him alone. Through the words of Moses, they are reminded of the seriousness of idolatry, and yet they still struggle with it. So Israel was unsuccessful in their spiritual devotion to the Lord and succumbed to idol worship. You and I today, in this modern technologically savvy world that we live in can very quickly and very thoroughly give ourselves over to that which God has created and worship those things as opposed to having a singular focus on the one true God who created it. So the days of creation are a reminder of the power and wisdom of God. They also indicate the only one that is worthy of worship. Why? Because He is the Creator. So God has created the luminaries here on day four. There's three purposes for the creation of the luminaries. Number one is separation. We see this in verse 14a and then in 18b as it is repeated. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And then down in verse 18, and to separate the light from the darkness. So on day one, God created light to separate the darkness from the night. This appears to have been... Excuse me, on day one, God creates this light. This appears to have been a temporary source of light emanating from His own glory that would dispel the darkness on the earth. And now here on day four, God is going to create permanent light that would continue the separation of day and night in man's experience in life on this earth. He creates this separation with the sun and the moon. So in verse 16, which is the centerpiece of this day of creation, it says, God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also, and then this is repeated in verse 18, and to govern the day and the night. So Moses intentionally avoids using the words of sun and moon. There were words for the sun and the moon in the Hebrew language. He avoids using those two words because of the way the ancients worshipped these two luminaries. In fact, as a part of God's command to the Israelites, he says in Deuteronomy 4.19, 
Be aware not to lift up your eyes to the heaven and to see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole of heaven. So God has said, I have created all of these things that you see in the sky. Make sure that you do not lift up your eyes to worship those things. After all, I am the one who has created them, not to be worshipped, but to be an illumination to all of the world, to display my majesty, my wisdom, and my glory in what it is that I have created. So rather than calling them the sun and the moon, Moses simply calls them the greater and the lesser lights, those that will govern the day and the night that God is separating through this act of creation. So to govern is to rule over, and Moses means that they govern over the separation of day and night. They don't rule or govern over the sun and the moon as God would as the one who has created them. So there's a distinction in what is to be understood in ruling over or in governing over. They simply are the ones that govern day and night by the decree, by the command, by the creation of God. So here's what we know a little bit about the sun. The sun radiates light and the moon reflects that light. The moon itself does not dispel any light. There is no light coming from the moon. It simply radiates light from the sun. The moon does not have its own source of light. It simply governs the night with the reflective light of the sun. So the sun and the moon are incredibly fascinating, and we could spend hours examining what is known about them. So here's some of the cut-and-paste information that I think is relevant and helps us understand the majesty and the power and the wisdom that is a part of what God has created. The sun is an immense ball of flame. Its diameter measures 865,000 miles, which is roughly 109 times greater than the diameter of the earth. The volume of the, of the sun is 1.3 million times greater than the volume of the earth. Meaning that if the sun was hollow, it would take more than a million earth-sized objects to fill it. That's immense. If the sun were the size of a bowling ball, the earth, by comparison, would look like a poppy seed. This is a scale, did you get that? This is a scale of the sun and the earth. Now, I don't know what you can see right there. Oops, um, where's my pointer? There it is. There's the earth right there. That's the sun, and that is a scaled version of the earth. If the sun was a bowling ball, the earth would be a poppy seed. Most scientists believe the sun is composed of 70% hydrogen, 28% helium, 1.5% carbon, nitrogen, and oxygen, and less than a half a percent of other elements. The surface temperature of the sun is estimated at about 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and scientists believe the temperature at its core is 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. That's pretty hot, right? (laughs) It's a good thing that it is 
it's in here somewhere, that it is 93 million miles away from the earth. At that distance, the light from the sun takes eight and a half minutes to show up on the earth. If the brightness, temperature, or distance of the sun were increased or decreased by only a few percentage points, either way, life as we know it on earth would soon and very quickly, it would end. Think about that. Two or three percentage points. The distance, the temperature, or the brightness changing two to three percentage points either direction life on earth could not exist. Now the moon is also an immense body. Its diameter is about one-fourth the size of the earth. It is 238,900 miles from the earth. Listen to this. Its surface temperature varies enormously compared to that of the earth. Depending upon whether it is in the sunlight or the darkness, the moon's surface can be as hot as 215 degrees Fahrenheit or it can be as cold as negative 243 degrees Fahrenheit. It is only 238,900 miles away from, further away from the sun than the earth is, and yet the temperature of the, of the moon is radically varied than what we experience here on earth. The same side of the moon always faces the earth. Think about that. Every time you go outside and you look up at the moon, you're seeing the exact same picture. If you stand on the moon, the earth is always at the same place in the sky. The moon, like the sun, helps keep the perfect balance of earth's life-sustaining environment. Ocean tides are caused by the moon's gravitational pull. High tides align with the moon on both sides of the earth. The earth bulges slightly toward and away from the moon, and this affects water levels of the oceans. As the earth rotates on its axis, those bulges move across the face of the earth. That is why there are two high and two low tides every day. This is why high tide and low tide can be predicted every single day because it's a consistent rotation, a consistent pattern every day, every week, every month of the year. Amazing to think about what is involved in the sun that governs the day and the moon which governs the night. Volumes of work that would take hours and hours and hours to discuss and talk about. But the bottom line is the vast majority of that is speculative because you can't really go and study the the sun. How can you do that? There's nothing that could sustain its heat. We've been to the moon. We know something about the moon. But we really can only speculate on why it is the way that it is. Tucked into the very, very end of verse 16 is this phrase. And he made the stars also. (laughs) I mean, what does that mean? Well, it means is that God created the sun that is so prominent and the moon that is likely is likewise so prominent and he made the entirety of the universe when he put all of that into the expanse 
Listen to this. It is estimated that there are at least 100 billion stars in our galaxy, most of which are not visible apart from telescopes or space travel. Here's a picture of our galaxy and that yellow circle that you see are the stars that are visible on from planet Earth without the aid of any telescope or without the aid of any space travel to look further and further into our universe. Now, in that yellow ball that you see here, right there is where we are. This is Earth. It's barely, that speck is barely larger than the light that comes, the pointer light that comes from my device here. Think about that. And he made the stars also. Now we could spend hours and hours looking at and talking about the Milky Way galaxy, but it is estimated that there are between 100 and 200 billion galaxies in the known universe. So when you look at the completeness of our galaxy, it is estimated that there are 100 to 200 billion more of those out there in the universe which are unknown and unknowable for the most part. They just basically estimate based upon what they can see. And then what they do, which is really so funny, is they take what is known about Earth and its relationship to the sun and to the moon, and then they speculate that same base information on all the other galaxies that are out there in the universe and say this is why and this is what and this is how, and and they're guessing. They really don't know. Well, verse 16 says, and he made the stars also. So, first purpose in creating the luminaries is for separation. Separating day from night. This centers in the creation of the sun and the moon. The second purpose of the creation of the luminaries is for regulation. We also see this in verse 14, the second half of there. And let them, the luminaries, be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And so the word signs in the Hebrew means a beacon. So there's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot more misunderstanding than this verse than you would actually think. So some think that this sign means that the luminaries are simply navigational tools to be used by mankind. Well, long before radar and satellites and GPS, sailors used nothing but the stars to plot their courses on the open seas, and they did this for thousands and thousands of years. Ancient peoples were dependent upon the stars for directing their travel and for anticipating the seasons. Now what's really fascinating is this. I'm going to go backwards. I didn't plan on doing this. When you look at this this galaxy and you look at these stars within the area we can see from the human eye, to us those look like fixed pieces out there in space And because they appear to be fixed pieces in space to us, sailors and others could navigate using the stars. But the reality is these stars are moving at incredible speeds and traveling over immense distances 
all the time. But to our human perspective, they are fixed in space when in reality they are not. They are moving faster than you and I could even believe. All right, so these these signs are a beacon. Another popular view, popular view about the sign is that um, the stars were given for astrological signs or omens of important events that were to come. You've heard people say, well, you know, the stars aligned or the universe spoke. And that's some of what is implied in the sign that is to be understood and what we can see out there in space. Others, another popular view, is that the gospel is revealed through the zodiac signs that are a part of astrology, which is really very absurd. You can actually um, communicate or uh, interpret the signs of the zodiac in a bunch of different ways. And if you ever read a horoscope, which I really, really hope you do not do, but if you ever read a horoscope, it is so generically applied, you can go, oh yeah, that's speaking right to me. Well, how can that be? How can it speak to you and thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of other people based upon the day of the month that you were born? It's just ridiculous, but it becomes a part of the speculation and what people think a sign in the stars actually mean. The verse is very, very clear. The luminaries were created for separation and for signs and seasons and for days and years. And in that way, the luminaries regulate our lives and they do so in ways that most of us fail to even recognize. So for example, they set our calendars. They determine the length of a year. They divide the year into seasons, and they mark the passage of our days and nights. In this sense, the entirety of human life is governed and regulated by the heavenly bodies. Have you wondered why there's a certain number of days in a month that has to do with the rotation of the luminaries? The amount of time that is that elapses in a year. It's the time of the rotation of the luminaries. So the sun determines our days, the moon determines our months, and the stars, sun, and moon all determine our seasons and years. The seasonal weather patterns are determined by the sun and the moon. Because the earth is tilted on an axis, the sun's rays strike different parts of the earth at different angles throughout the year that produces seasons that are critical for the rejuvenation of life, the growing of crops, and the flourishing of the earth. The length of our days and even our sleep patterns are set in perfect harmony with the amount of time it takes the earth to complete one full rotation. So in this sense, the luminaries or the celestial bodies determine when we eat, when we work, and when we sleep. And all of this was set in motion perfectly on day four of creation. Now we could most certainly spend a lot more time digging into each of these aspects. But the reality is that our calendar is determined by the signs and the seasons that are established in what God has created in the luminaries. The month is determined by the luminary. What is incredible is a day is defined in the luminary movement. A month is defined. A year is defined. How did a week get defined? Where did the distinction of a week ever get its creation in the calendar that you and I observe today? 
and the seven days of creation so clearly explained in Genesis chapter 1. Seven days in a week based upon what God's Word says. There's nothing in the luminary rotation that dictates or defines the length of a week. Isn't that amazing? It's not a coincidence. Now, the third purpose for the creation of the luminaries, not only separation and regulation, but also illumination, it is the most obvious to us of those purposes. We see that stated in verse 15 and then repeated in verse 17. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. So we've already looked briefly at some of the sun's unique attributes. And the sun is the chief source of light on the earth. I mentioned this briefly in passing when we talked about light on day one. And there's so much about light that scientists don't understand and can't really explain. It is far more complex than you and I can even begin to imagine. So since the sun's light reflects off the moon, it is also the source of the light that we see at night. What is interesting is that almost every segment of light, excuse me, almost every segment of the light spectrum created by the sun is essential for sustaining life. There are hundreds of elements within the spectrum of light, and most all of them are essential to life on Earth. Ultraviolet rays are vital for photosynthesis, the process by which plants and even some bacteria use energy to produce sugar, carbohydrates, and other nutrients from carbon dioxide that is produced in our breathing and from the um, uh, the animal life that will be created on day six. So in the process of photosynthesis, vegetation releases oxygen, which means earth vegetation works like lungs for the planet, taking the carbon dioxide emitted by other living creatures and converting it back into nutrients and to oxygen. Now, that's a pretty complex process that's taking place right outside there in our yard that makes life for us possible that God created when He said, let it be. And we really don't know a lot about how all that works together, but the wisdom and the power and the majesty that is displayed in creation is just absolutely beyond belief. It is an incredibly intelligent design that is revealed in the way our environment works. All of this is made possible by the light emitted from the sun. Now, I'm going to pause here and say this. (laughs) I will not get into a discussion on weather and climate change in this message. But let's just say this. The weather patterns that exist in our world are exponentially more involved than just man's contribution to the environment. Thinking about the vast size of the sun and the energy that is emitted from the sun and to think that somehow man has the ability to interrupt or to alter that is just really laughable. For example, in 1989, there was a solar flare 
on the sun. You know, so a solar flare is just a, a slight eruption. The sun is not a static ball. When you look at it upon magnification, it looks like a molten ball of hot lava that is just bubbling. And so occasionally there are solar flares where there is a greater amount of energy that is released. And in 1989, there was a solar flare on the sun and it knocked out a Canadian power plant and millions of customers lost power for hours. The typical solar flare, the typical solar flare releases the energy equivalent to several million 100 megaton hydrogen bombs. How much is a megaton? You know, you got a megabyte, you got a gigabyte. A hundred megaton hydrogen bomb. Excuse me, several million hundred megaton hydrogen bombs. That's the equivalent energy that is released in a typical solar flare. And yet our world is consumed, as we jokingly said yesterday, that if we will just burn less matches, we can save the earth. It's amazing. If if the earth spun a little bit faster or a little bit slower on its axis, or if the axis was off by just a degree, life on earth would not exist. It couldn't. The distance of the sun to the earth, of the moon to the sun, all of these things interconnected, interrelated, interdependent make life possible on earth. There is nothing observable in our galaxy that even compares to the complexity that makes life on earth possible. And God simply said, let it be. And it was. And he says in verse 18, and God saw that it was good. It has accomplished his purpose for separation, for regulation, for illumination. Everything worked precisely the way He planned it. There's no defect. There's no deficiency. The luminaries simply expose the glory and the majesty of God. The psalmist would write this, The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them He has placed a tent for the sun. The created world screams of the majesty and the glory of God. As we think about the vastness of God's creation, the power and the wisdom and the glory it displays, we're also reminded in the Psalms of God's intentional interest in you and me. Think about that. What is man that you take thought of him? And the Son of Man that you compare for Him. They look at this. One of possibly a hundred million or two hundred billion galaxies that God created with just the word of His mouth. And here we are. 
And the God who created it is mindful of you. Verse 19 says, There was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Creation is 96 hours old and there's 48 hours to go. Would you join me in prayer?